0: Section twenty five of The Book of Famous Sieges. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Book of Famous Sieges by Tudor Jenks. Chapter Twenty Five The Siege of Paris, eighteen seventy. When we come to the taking of Paris in the Franco-Prussian War, we reach a time that is in every way modern, and yet so rapid have been the changes in the last thirty years, that in certain respects many of the things that seemed remarkable in those days are now almost old-fashioned. So many inventions were made between that time and ours that the warfare of today makes even the war of 1870 seems anything but up-to-date. They used the old black gunpowder, with its heavy smoke instead of smokeless powder. Their guns were far inferior in force and rapidity of fire. They made little use of electricity compared to the numberless ways in which it is now employed, and certainly upon the side of the French the siege showed complete lack of previous preparation owing largely to their surprise at the rapid progress of the german army the origin of the war is said by the french historians of later times to have been due to the desire on the part of the emperor to win military glory so that his descendants might retain the throne prussia had been growing in power so rapidly That the french were alarmed and desired to curb her strength the crown of spain was offered to a young prince of the hohenzollers the royal house of prussia and though he refused it france demanded a promise that prussia would not allow in future one of her princes on the spanish throne the dispatches telling of the refusal by the king of prussia were deliberately doctored by bismarck to bring on war he believed war must come, knew Prussia was ready and France was not, and so desired the fight. France declared war, since the emperor and the government were told everything was ready. The French minister of war declared publicly that though the war should last a year, they would not need to buy even a gator button. This was absurdly, disgracefully untrue of the French, entirely true of the german preparations at a mere skirmish near sarbrück the french were victorious and napoleon the third sent a boastful telegram that the prince imperial had received his baptism of fire but as soon as the armies came together in serious conflict it was found that the german general von moltke and his staff knew everything about the French country and forces, had complete plans, had brought into the field perfectly equipped armies, and could easily overwhelm the half-prepared French at every point. On the French side everything was wrong, confused, unready, and at cross purposes. The only thing worthy of praise was the superb bravery of the French soldiers, of whom their own statesmen then said, that they were lions led by asses. A few of the French officers distinguished themselves, but their fighting was like a football game in which team-play is utterly lacking. Those who fought well lost all advantages through lack of support. There were throughout France guns without carriages, wagons without horses, troops without rifles, officers without maps. There is no need to retell the painful struggle made by the brave Frenchmen, who simply were striving to do the impossible. The Germans won every field and separated the three French armies from one another, shutting one into Sedan and capturing it with the Emperor. Another was driven into Metz and hopelessly besieged. The only notable resistance was made by the army of the lawyer, which had some successes at Orléans but was finally overwhelmed by numbers and practically driven out of the field. In the same way, the army of the North also won a few battles, but when heavier forces were brought against it, it was forced to retreat, finally passing into Switzerland and laying down its arms. The war had been declared on July the 15th. It was at the beginning of September that Napoleon Third had been captured, and as soon as this news reached Paris, he was declared deposed, and a new government was created, a republic devoted simply to the defense of the fatherland. The great crowd of Parisians that flocked into the place de la Concorde burst into cries of Vive la Repubblica and before the end of the next day the revolution was complete, the empire at an end, and the new government at work, to prepare the city for the siege, that all knew must soon follow. Orders were given to turn out all German residents, for fear of spies, to provision the city with flour, herds of cattle, flocks of sheep, every sort of supply that could be drawn from the country round about the defenses of the forts around the city which occupied detached hills were put in order bridges over all neighboring rivers were mined ready to be blown up or were turned down all houses and woods that might prevent the artillerymen from seeing the advancing enemy were burned to the ground and even great barricades were planned to be placed in the city if the Germans should succeed in passing the forts. To keep watch for the enemy, a great captive balloon was sent high above the city, where it floated at the end of its long rope. In order to arouse the rest of France to the greatest efforts, Gambetta, who was the moving spirit of the defense, entered a balloon basket, escaped from the city, and succeeded in making his way to Tours where many of the authorities in charge of the war were gathered, having left Paris as the Germans came dangerously near. Meanwhile, the German armies had been arriving, almost unopposed, to within a short distance of the city, here and there meeting some momentary attempts at resistance, but no organized force of any size. By the middle of October... Despite several sallies which were sharply repulsed, the Germans had made their lines about the city a complete ring, so that no supplies could reach the capital. On October 27th came news of the surrender of Metz, containing 173,000 French. This set free, for the surer taking of Paris, 200,000 of the best soldiers of Germany, against whom inside and outside of Paris, could be mustered only almost untrained men. The French, despite all disadvantages, still showed the utmost bravery at times, making, on October the 30th, a grand attempt to break the German line, in which they say that the bayonets of the armies crossed, an occurrence that is very rare in modern warfare, having taken place in our own civil war only it is said at spotsylvania and perhaps in the storming of one or two forts like fort wagner or in the siege of port arthur in 1904 after metz was surrounded it was seen that only the army of marshal macmahon could bring help to the french as a last resort the empress directed marshal macmahon to try a flank attack upon the Germans, in the hope of diverting them from their advance upon Paris. In speaking of this afterward, the Germans said that if he had commanded a thoroughly prepared army, the policy might have been a wise one. But with his half-trained soldiers, the attempt resulted only in McMahon's being driven back to Sedan, where he was later forced to surrender eighty thousand men. In a little over two weeks from the time the Germans had first arrived around Paris, the serious siege began. Towards the end of September, an attempt had been made to enroll in the French army of defense every citizen from the age of twenty to forty. But although this undoubtedly raised troops who were patriotic, brave and devoted, they were untrained and had nothing of the steadiness of veterans. Meanwhile Paris, unprepared for the siege, suffered from every sort of privation. One by one, first luxuries and then necessities began to fail. Not only was the city compelled to provide for its own citizens, but from miles around the country people had been coming in daily, up to the very arrival of the German army to take refuge within its walls, bringing their few household goods in the hope of saving them from the German invaders. Food rose rapidly in price, and when ordinary kinds of meat failed, every eatable animal was resorted to for butcher's meat. In the markets not only was horse meat commonly seen, but that of mules, dogs, cats, and rats, and by the slaughter of the animals in the zoological garden the meat of elephants lions tigers and every sort of beast was brought to market and eagerly bought by the starving parisians many books have been written concerning the incidents the miseries and the humours of the siege communication with the outside world was kept up by dispatching balloons over ninety of which left the city and nearly all reached the outside world in safety. Carrier pigeons also were used to convey messages that had been photographed to microscopic size, printed upon the thinnest paper, thrust into quills, and attached under the bird's wings. The winter proved intensely cold. When ordinary fuel failed, everything burnable was soon used up to keep the inhabitants from freezing. Almost no news reached the city from outside, and what little came was discouraging. The Germans at first remained satisfied to keep their strong lines unbroken, knowing that they had plenty of troops to meet and defeat the few armies that could be raised in France for the purpose of relieving the beleaguered city, and yet could easily overwhelm any sortie made by the parisians there was not much military skill shown in these french attacks though there was plenty of desperate bravery in the journals of the german staff we read that it was easy to know when an attack was preparing against the german lines for a battle flag was hoisted near the french forts where the troops were gathering for the assault Thus. The forewarned Germans had ample time to bring a strong force to any threatened point. When the French had determined to risk all upon one last attempt to break through the German forces, they went about its preparations so openly that the German officers could see the troops marching to the points appointed. And from the German emperor down, the leaders placed themselves where they could not only see every movement, but could direct the placing of the German forces to meet the attack. Consequently, when the French came out, they were met by so deadly a fire that their desperate charges did not carry them even to the first line of the German armies. And the French reserves were thrown into disorder by the artillery of the Germans, which had been so placed as to destroy them even before they could reach the field of actual fighting for three or four hours the hopeless struggle was renewed but though a few places of small importance were captured and held for a short time by nine o'clock that night the attempt of the french to break through had ended in a defeat so complete that in the morning There was no spirit to make a second attack. The Germans had not wished to bombard the city. They believed that when the French saw resistance to be entirely hopeless, surrender would follow. But although all attempts to break through the German lines had failed, the French pride refused to surrender and deluded itself with wild dreams of outside interference or impossible successes by the provincial armies, and refused even to ask terms. It was only when the city was within two weeks of the end of its food supply, and when the last sortie had failed, that Paris was willing to talk of capitulating. On January 28, 1871, terms were made whereby France gave up Alzac and Lorraine a thousand million of dollars and agreed that the germans should hold the city for forty-eight hours thus ended the siege and at once england germany and france united in sending food to the starving people the lesson to be drawn from the siege of paris has been pointed out by the german comments. it is the certainty that untrained men no matter how brave and intelligent and willing to lay down their lives in desperate fighting, cannot hold their own against even inferior numbers of trained soldiers directed by intelligent instructed officers. The French were mere amateurs, playing the game of war against professionals. Paris was really taken by blockade rather than by a siege. It was a starved city that surrendered to the german armies for none of the great fortresses were taken or needed to be taken the germans merely made their circle of soldiers and kept it unbroken until famine forced the surrender and now we come to our own times though there were some notable small sieges between that of paris and that of port arthur none of them give us any new point of view but at port arthur were used new weapons, new artillery, the telephone, searchlights, modern warships, torpedoes, all the modern improvements in war. The stronghold was prepared by five years of skilled work of great Russian engineers, and no money was spared to make the forts able to resist any force that could be brought against them. They were placed on lofty ranges of hills, were provided with bomb-proof trenches, protected with steel plates, with deep ditches, with concrete walls, and were strengthened with wire entanglements charged with strong electric currents. And yet, despite machine-guns that sent rains of bullets, of strong garrisons having ample supplies of ammunition for their quick-firing magazine rifles, of great searchlights of rockets and bombs— that turned night into day, these forts were taken, one by one, and at length Port Arthur was surrendered to Japan. The story cannot be told at length, but we must at least note the most important features of this, the most modern of great sieges. End of chapter 25